Welcome to the Energy Update presented by the Institute for Energy Research for the week of August 24th, 2020. I'm Alex Stevens, and I'm joined by IER's Deputy Director of Public Policy, Jordan McGillis. Jordan, how are things going today? Things are going well, Alex. Thank you. We have two blogs that we want to highlight for the audience this week. Uh, The first is an article from IER's senior economist, David Kreutzer, where he discusses a recent paper on the social costs of carbon. Jordan, I know this is an area of interest of yours, so do you want to talk a little bit about this blog? Dr. Kreutzer's piece is a review and critique, essentially, of an article uh, that came out in the journal Nature Climate Change earlier this summer. Um, And the article that Dr. Kreutzer is assessing comes from a a group of scholars that are at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, led by Noah Kaufman, who's a rather outspoken commentator in favor of a carbon tax. Along with his co-authors, Kaufman titled this paper, A Near-Term to Net-Zero Alternative to the Social Cost of Carbon for Setting Carbon Prices. Uh, To the layman, that doesn't make any sense. Sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. And I assumed that the paper was better than Dr. Kreutzer gave it credit for. But after reading both his review and then reading the paper myself, I'm truly blown away by how much it it really is just mumbo jumbo. This article does a very interesting job actually of explaining why the so-called social cost of carbon isn't a useful metric. And, but then it goes in a very strange direction with its implications from that. So what it says about the social cost of carbon is that the range of possible um, warming scenarios that we face in the future, but more importantly, the range of impacts on human life that we face from that range of possible warming scenarios is far too broad for us to come with any precision to a so-called social cost of carbon, which is what some people say um, is a, a veritable metric that can tell us how damaging the burning of fossil fuels is for people in the future. And what Kaufman is saying is, no, there are too many variables, too many contingencies, We really can't say with any precision what this actual cost for people will be. So my response when when I myself come to that that same conclusion is that that's the very reason why carbon pricing makes no sense. But Kaufman and his co-authors say that because of this uncertainty surrounding the social cost of carbon, we should throw it out entirely and then just assume that we need to get to net zero carbon emissions. it truly boggles the mind how someone can make that leap. In formal logic, we would refer to this as begging the question. And what that means is that it's assuming the premise. So Kaufman and his co-authors are saying, we need to get to net zero emissions, but they're assuming the premise that there is some cost to the existing emissions or the future emissions that we'll have. They're writing off the possibilities of of us reaching precision on what those costs are, but then assume, well, there must be some costs that we need to get to net zero. It, it just simply defies the way we, sh- we should proceed through our thinking about societal challenges. If we can't tangibly and clearly state what the harms of actions are, who is causing the harms, and how we can reduce those harms, then we, we can't assume any given policy. Uh, and this paper is arguing that because we have no precision, we should just assume that we need to get to zero. Uh, And then it it argues based on that framework for 
various points in time at which we should get to zero. But again, if you don't truly think there's a social cost of carbon that can be reached with precision, it doesn't make any sense at all to say there's any time frame on which you need to get to net zero emissions. Would it be right to say that the paper is just applying the precautionary principle? I, I haven't had an opportunity to read it, so I, I, just wondering if it's I think an, that an application that's, that's of that in some sense. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Um, I want to pull up a specific section of this paper, and it will give give us a bit of clarity on that. Well, I can't find the exact quote, but essentially the the authors say economists overwhelmingly, this is their word, overwhelmingly support a carbon price, but they differ on the where that price should be and they differ on the the time scale over which they intend for their price to to phase out out carbon and i think it is fair to say that it, this is an over application of what is known as the precautionary principle they're saying well everyone thinks it's probably a bad thing to be burning a certain amount of carbon dioxide so we need to just get rid of it altogether uh, and now let's just debate over when we need to do it um, so I think that's fair. I would argue, and the authors may dispute this, but I would argue that this this paper really goes against the work of uh, the renowned economist William Nordhaus, who recognizes that, that there is a degree of optimal warming, even in his framework, which is pro-carbon tax. He recognizes there is a an amount of warming over the next couple of centuries that permits us to get quite a bit richer, which would overcome any negatives that emerge from, from global warming. Again, that buys into the social cost of carbon framework. Uh, and my interpretation of Kaufman and his co-author's work is that they're really throwing that out and, and saying, we just need to get rid of this stuff entirely. That blog can be found on our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Yes, and Dr. Kreutzer uh, more succinctly and um, rather wittily uh, makes his case against the, the approach taken in this Kaufman article. So Dr. Kreutzer's piece is titled The Social Co Cost of Carbon Fantasy on the IER website. And Alex, you've got an article on, on the IER blog that, that you wanted to discuss. It compares California's failures with, uh, on electricity with some of the more reasonable approaches taken in other states and, and really highlights the dangers that California has imposed on itself. Yeah, I think it's pretty common knowledge now that there are a lot of people leaving the state of California. Between 2007 and 2016, they had a net loss of a million residents. And uh, most of the people who are leaving the state are either lower middle income people. And generally speaking, uh, the number one reason has generally been uh, housing prices. But what this article points out, and something I certainly agree with, is that the ongoing problems with California's grid isn't going to help that situation for the state of California. And obviously with the blackouts and things, another cost of living in that state um, in terms of the bad policies that politicians have chosen there. And uh, what the blog points out is that states like Texas stand ready to jump at the opportunity to invite people fleeing the state of California. And in terms of electricity, uh, Texas is a pretty good example of a state that's gone in a pretty different direction in terms of its policies. Not only does Texas have uh, more reliable uh, electricity, they're not frequently experiencing blackouts every year or so, 
Um, but their residential electricity prices are 37% less than California. Commercial prices are 47% less. Industrial prices, 54% less. And uh, so for anyone looking for an opportunity in a new state, Texas is really a uh, completely different situation than what we're seeing in California right now. And yeah, so there's certainly, certainly some interesting data points there. One that I've seen is that if you exclude migration to California from other countries, and you just look at domestic in-migration and out-migration, California is losing people, uh, which is definitely surprising because it, it holds a place in American lore of being a land of opportunity. Of course, it's where millions of people moved in the early 20th century as the, the cities on the, on the coast began to, to really blossom, Los Angeles and, and San Francisco and the Bay Area generally in particular. And uh, now, on the other hand, it's it's a constant source of, of conversation, actually, with among Californians of, well, are you thinking of leaving? Are you uh, looking at Texas? It, it, is a, it is actually a palpable feature in California life right now to be discussing um, the possibility of going elsewhere. And Texas is attractive to people because it has uh, a very strong economy, as does California for the most part, but it has more reliable services and, and quite clearly better state and local governance. Yes, certainly. Both of these articles that we discussed today can be found on our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Alex Stevens.